Welcome to the Exploring Leadership Podcast, where we interview experienced HR leaders and executives to define what the most effective leaders are made of and how to help underperforming leaders transform into the best they can be. Brought to you by Lumen Leadership. Now, here's your host, Spencer Taylor. You are in for a real treat today. My guest came from the humblest of beginnings, having been raised in poverty in Mexico, and now he's running to become the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. He retired as a full bird colonel in the U.S. Army. At one point, he met Hugo Chavez, the former president of Venezuela, who was quite ruthless and, as my guest puts it, basically destroyed the nation during his tenure from 1999 to 2013. So with that as a bit of a teaser, and without further ado, let's get into the interview, and then I'll cap it off with a few afterthoughts. I am delighted today to have Sergio de la Pena as my guest. Sergio, good morning. Thank you very much, Spencer. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Sergio, you and I met through a mutual friend, and I'd like to kick our conversation off by reading a short bio this friend sent to me, and then invite you to elaborate and fill in some additional details so we can get to know you. Sergio previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Beyond his incredibly successful military career, he then moved into defense contracting and a civil service career. He's a driven man on a mission to promote the American dream a dream based on Judeo-Christian beliefs and inspired constitution, and that the success of America is based on giving opportunity to all classes to work for their individual success. He's currently running for governor of Virginia. I'm so grateful to have you on the show, Sergio. I'd love to hear more about you, your experience, your background, so we can get to know you as we prepare to move into a discussion about leadership lessons you've learned uh, along your journey. Uh, Just to give you a little bit about me, I was born in Mexico. I was raised in a house with a, with a dirt floor, no running water, no electricity. And we cooked our meals on a wood-burning stove because uh, we didn't have gas either. So that's, that's uh, my situation when I was first born. Uh, I came to the United States at the age of five with my family legally. We started helping out the family uh, by picking cotton. We did this as, as a group. Uh, that was at 10. I had 20 odd jobs between the time I started picking cotton and the time I went to the army. Or more more than odd, they were part-time jobs because I needed to do that to be able to help out um, because my dad didn't make that much money. Um, I came in the army in 1978. I served for 30 years. Uh, I retired as a colonel. I was an air defense officer, and then in the Ar- in Army speak, I was also a foreign area officer, which is um, in the realm of military diplomacy. I left the Army, uh, worked as a consultant briefly, and then I was able to get a job as a, as a defense contractor for a couple of years, and then went back to defense consulting, and in 2016, uh, I kept yelling at the TV, and my wife said, I look silly. Uh, because I wasn't happy with the candidate for the presidency. So I got involved in uh, then-candidate Trump's presidential campaign uh, to have an outreach to Hispanic voters. And I think we did a pretty decent job because he won. Uh, I thought that was the end of it. And a couple of weeks later, I get a call inviting me to join the transition team at the Pentagon. Later, was tapped by... President Trump's team to 
uh, be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs, which means uh, I was responsible for running uh, defense policy for this half the globe. And I think we did a pretty decent job because we had the best alignment of countries in this hemisphere that we've had in our history. The only three that were out of alignment was Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And so after four and a half, after those four years, um, I had a call from a friend uh, to consider running for governor, which I had taken up, and now I'm doing that. So that's that's kind of a quick synopsis. I went to school at the university. I started out at the um, at Eastern New Mexico University for my first two years of college, and then later I went to the University of Iowa. In between, I had one seminal moment in that I was invited to um, go to airborne and ranger school as a cadet. So I got my, my airborne wings and my ranger tab before I went in the Army. Wow, very incredible. I, I sense a deep drive in you that has been prevalent already in our conversation today and certainly during a short conversation we had last week as well. We can say you've had multiple successful careers from your military service, civil service, consulting and contracting, and now entering a political race to become a governor. I'd love to hear your thoughts around what has created that deep drive in you that uh, has endured through all these different transitions. And you just have this, uh, this natural, I don't know if natural is the right word, but this ambition behind the positive things you've achieved up to now. I think it's the fact that I came to the United States. Uh, it's, and I live in a commonwealth, which I feel is the cradle of the American experiment that's created the greatest good and opportunity for the world in the history of humanity. This is, this is where it began. This the commonwealth is the birthplace of four of five of the first presidents. It's where the two key drafters of our seminal documents were born and raised, and that is the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I feel that that, that experiment is what created the American dream. And the uniqueness of my American dream story is that I'm not unique in this country. It's the only country in the world. It's the only country in the history of humanity that has provided those opportunities. And the reason I'm running for governor is because I'm seeing that American dream being threatened by socialist policies that are being implemented at, at the Commonwealth level through our General Assembly and our, and our governor's laws that he's approving. So this is the whole rationale for it. And I, I'm, I'm driven because I'm a, I am a homeschool father of five children. I believe in those Judeo-Christian principles you mentioned, and I want to be sure that they're around for my children and grandchildren. And that kind of ties everything together, I feel. I love that your drive is coming from that deep place of wanting your posterity and all of our posterity to have the same opportunities to carry on with the American dream. That brings up another thought, too, that I had during your introduction Sometimes if our children are not required to struggle and grind like we are, it's challenging to make sure, I guess we have to be deliberate and thoughtful about how we can make sure they have the same appreciation for what is required to continue living as a free people. I think the key is to have children challenged and have them go through some of the same experiences you did, maybe not to the same level. I don't, I'm not going to put my kids out in the cotton field to go pick cotton, but if they can get work uh, as teenagers so that they can appreciate what they earn, that makes a huge difference. And I think that it's one of those uh, things that often parents don't want to do because you want your children to have it better than you did. But sometimes 
If you coddle children too much, that's not the way to go. You need to put them in a situation where they're challenged and they have to earn their own way. But I couldn't agree more. Uh, the personal nature of those experiences and helping the next generation feel the challenges that we've gone through is so important. Their challenges are different than ours, but having them prepared in terms of their character gives them the resiliency to endure well. If I may add just a little bit more, when before I went to ranger school, two summers before that I had worked wheat harvest in Oklahoma, and then the summer right leading, well, the, the summer of between my sophomore and junior years in college, I worked on a drilling rig. And all of those jobs were not very comfortable. They weren't very nice, and people were mean sometimes, but you learn how to deal with it. And so when I went to Airborne and Ranger School, it was it was challenging. It was hard, but I already had some sense, some sense of what it is to deal in, in high-stress environments. And so you need to test yourself. You need to stress yourself because the world is not always a nice place, as we all know those of us have been in the Army. And so... It's that preparation that I think is necessary. If you want to have a North Star, you always seek truth. And that truth is based on a belief in God and, and, and God's principles. Uh, it, they're, they're, those are not relative. Those are firm and concrete. And you can start it with something as simple as the Ten Commandments and then you know Jesus' teachings. Uh, so that's what we have inculcated in our children so that when they are confused and lost, you go, you fall back on that and you understand what you are required to do and how you're required to do it. That is so great. What a powerful principle. I think we could easily end the conversation now and would already have so much to take forward with us. Of course, we won't do that because we're here to talk more about leadership and lessons you've learned that have helped shape who you are as a leader now. Some of those lessons may include what to do, those characteristics you've implemented after seeing their positive impact. Other lessons often point toward what not to do or what type of leader you choose to avoid becoming as you have moved from various, uh, moved through various leadership roles. You're welcome to start with whatever has come to mind. And I understand you'll likely omit names just to maintain anonymity of those that we'll be discussing. Uh, a high impact leader was my brigade commander when I was a captain. Uh, my key takeaways from that gentleman were that he was a continuation of what I had picked up in leadership training that you get from airborne and then more intensively in ranger school. But what he taught me was that you have to establish standards. His business was whatever you accept becomes your standard. And his definition of leadership is getting people to do what they don't want to do or what they don't think they can do. And he was a he was the kind of character that was not always very nice, uh, but he was always very firm in his beliefs. He was very firm on his standards. He had the same ruler for everybody, and he would rank order you from one to twenty six. If that's how many people he had, and I think I'm I'm trying to remember it somewhere between twenty four and twenty six, and he would give you an envelope and say, "Here's where you stand in the rankings. Here's what you here's where your where your strong points are." Here's where your weak points are. Here's what you can do to improve them. And he would invite everybody and hand you your, hand you your envelope. And then he would tell those at the top that he expected you to stay there. And if you didn't, you could very easily fall in the ranking system. So he was very upfront about the way he did business. So the key things was you always knew where you stood with him. And if you didn't meet the standards, um, he would fire you. And he fired three people when, when I was uh, working for him. 
But if you look back at how those people were fired, not only did they meet, they didn't meet the standards, most of them, two of the three quit and one had some serious family problems and uh, he was able to give this guy a graceful out. So even though he could be gruff, he was fair and he was somebody that, that I looked up to. Um, he later, uh, when he left the army, when I was looking for work, uh, he's the person who gave me work. The thing about him is whenever I needed his help, guidance, and counseling, um, he was always there. Sadly, about a year ago, he uh, he died of cancer. So uh, I remember him fondly. I remember uh, the example that he set. And he had a, he had a long legacy. Uh, but again, he was not the kind of guy that, that if you wanted, if you got, if you wanted a hug and a squeeze, he wasn't going to give it to you. He would, uh, <laughs> he, he would, he would be rough, but he was the kind of person that you just, you can't help it, uh, but respect over time. What a great story. You use the words gruff, rough, and not always nice. Now those attributes go against what many would characterize as a great leader especially in our modern world with perhaps, uh, we could say, the rising generation. They tend to want a softer approach. But this approach was very effective, even though this gentleman may not have had the best bedside manner. Do you have thoughts on on that uh, principle in the context of modern leadership? Does the gruff and not always nice approach still work? Does it have some merit? Our society today would have been fired for being a toxic leader. Uh, because of the nature of where we've evolved to. Um, if we continue in this, in this vein, we are going to be in a bad place because those kinds of people are no longer going to be uh, acceptable. He was not the kind of person that's going to sit there and, and uh, pat you on the back for things that you didn't do or positive things that you didn't do. He was sort of like the Geico commercial of the gunny sergeant that's the therapist. If you haven't seen that, go back and look up gunny as a therapist and you can see the kind of person that he could be. Mm-hmm. What, and the, the thing I respected about him is that he and I had a special relationship. He could be a screamer. He never once ever yelled at me publicly, but he was always good at calling me to his office and I'd stand at attention and he'd yell and scream and spit all over me as he was yelling. But, um, it was, it, we had a special relationship and I'll leave it at that. And the times that he yelled and screamed at me, it was coming because at the time I was also the kind of, uh, person that took a few more risks than maybe I should have. And his way of explaining to me, don't do that was, uh, stand at attention and I'll yell at you. So it was fine. I, I, again, I, I was raised under a different environment. I didn't take any of the stuff personally, the same as when you go to ranger school and people would hang you over a cliff and say they're going to drop you uh, because you got a guy that's strong and I'm skinny and he's got me hanging um, by one of his arms over a cliff. I, I guess today that would be considered bad. I knew he was going to drop me. Uh, but you have to have a certain level of confidence. So it, it, it's a different time and a different style. But what it does is it shows you that the world is not Uh, always going to be a safe place and you've got to get yourself conditioned to that sort of thing. One of the things that stands out from what you just shared is the consistency with which he led. I I had to come to memory uh, a scene from the movie Remember the Titans where the two coaches are arguing about how rough the head coach is with his players and that coach rebuts the accusations uh, by saying, I may be a mean cuss, but I'm the same mean cuss with everybody out there on that football field. 
So there wasn't any bias or favoritism. Uh, that is probably why it worked for the leader that you described. He was consistent. That was one of the threads of virtue with which he led. Yes, I, exactly. He he did have that way. He was very even-handed with everybody. And and if you could if you could take his pressure, you'd do okay. Uh, I once did something he didn't want me to do, and uh, immediately thereafter he descended upon my motor pool and started lining my vehicles for little little things. And then he uh, he went and inspected my supply room and 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 he could only find little things. And then he tested me in the field. He would do all sorts of things. He gave me inspection upon inspection, and every time I kept doing better and better and better. And when he was done with me, it was it had become one of these things where he called an official meeting of the battalion officers because they knew that I was being tested by him. And he said, those of you that don't know why I'm here, I'm going to tell you. And it was to, to let you know that De La Peña is off my list. And he had a couple of other explicatives to explain what kind of a list that was. And so uh, when when I left his his command, I had the best report card that I've ever had in the Army, and I would characterize that as one of the reasons why I made colonel, because I, I knew what it was like to be tested. Now, if if I didn't have a sense of humor, I, I, I could have said he's just being mean. The other, the, my, I saw it, okay, you, I, you want to test me? I can test you, and uh, I can learn from this. And I can be better. And every time <clears throat> I got better and better at what I was doing. Now, most people don't want to go through that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't mind it. I mean, it was just, okay, uh, so this is the way it is, and let's just go for it. I love how you phrase that. It left you better than you've ever been before. The nitpicking can be really frustrating, could cause some of us to blow our lid even. Uh, however, you stayed calm and steady in the way you responded to his leadership style. It turned out to be a huge step forward in empowering you to, maybe we could say, live at an even higher standard in the finest details of the way you led and contributed to your uh, promotion to colonel. That's, a, that's not a small statement. I love that there is so much positive that came out of, of that uh, series of experiences that by today's standard, as, as you put it, uh, probably would have, he probably would have been uh, dismissed or, or terminated as a toxic leader. And yet there's still good that came. Absolutely. The thing is that I always knew about him is that he always had your best interest in mind because people would say he's mean, he's bad, he's going to fire people. No, he didn't fire people. People quit on him. And if you didn't quit on him, he, he would take care of you. And he and he did that with a lot of people. And he got the most out of you. Uh, but he put you through the ringer. And he wasn't he wasn't the big huggy, squeezy kind of guy. But but I loved him. And he was a he was a mentor to me. And I and whenever I needed his help, he was always there. Great. So there is another side of leadership, another side of the coin, so to speak. We call it the stormy side of leadership. I'd love to learn what came to mind as you thought about a leader who may have demonstrated characteristics that you prefer not to emulate and integrate into your style of leadership. So the stormy side of the leadership was uh, my battalion commander when I was in S3. And that gentleman was very, very smart, very calculating. Uh, very measured, hardworking. Uh, when he was promoted to brigadier general, he was the youngest brigadier general in the army. Uh, and so he was the kind of person that rode everybody hard, uh, but the credit went to him. And 
He was always very cautious of any sort of negative thing that could get back to him. He would always find somebody else to hold accountable. And so he was the opposite. He still made general. He still did, uh, but he only made it as far as one star, and that was that was the end of the line. Eventually, the, his personality caught up with him, and uh, he didn't go much further. But I was always curious as to how he was able to continue on in his career, and it was because he was very able to please his bosses at the expense of his subordinates. Um, and uh, I had a hard time with him uh, because he would tell me, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, while I was working for him, he was uh, he was twice below the zone uh, to uh, to Colonel. So I think he, you know, whatever I did wrong, I was at least part of the reason he made 06. Now, all of that is water under the bridge because in a way he was a blessing in disguise. Uh, in a way, uh, well, actually, he was very instrumental in me taking the path that I took. Because of that reason, I decided I'm done with uh, my initial branch. I'm going to become a foreign area officer, which is what I've always wanted to do. And uh, at the time uh, when I was a fail, uh, they weren't. It wasn't a functional area, so we didn't have the same professional advancement possibilities within that branch. But I didn't care because I just liked what I was doing. And I thought, well, I'll never make I'll never make colonel because nobody really cares about these guys. They're not in a, they weren't an official branch until year group 80. I was year group 78. And lo and behold, uh, I always got good report cards. I did my job to the best of my abilities, and uh, I still got promoted to colonel. And then later, I got an opportunity to be um, make it to the Inter-American Defense College, which is a, a male one producer, meaning it's a war college. Uh, variant. So I, I went, I made Colonel, I made it to the war college and I was a fail. And, uh, I loved every minute of, of my experience as a fail. And I stayed in 30 years. And because I was a fail, uh, when I went through this process with the campaign, uh, not only was I, uh, a Spanish surrogate for the campaign, uh, when I went into the transition team, I went in to do the job that I all, always wanted to do, which was to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs, because that was the pinnacle job for a foreign air officer, because you can't do that in uniform. So because of that bad experience that I had with that one boss, he actually pointed me in the direction that got me to where I've been. And so you you don't know the long-term effects of what it is that you do. If you do your job to the best of your abilities, the opportunities will come. So even in that situation, I actually uh, was very blessed. One of the things I really love about this second story is really your approach to telling this story that I, I think all of us can benefit from and implement into our own lives, our own leadership roles. And that is you found the positive lessons, the the rays of sunshine, so to speak, that you then carried forward to become a stronger leader? Well, one of the things that you have to remember is we live in the greatest country on earth and in the greatest country in the history of humanity. And the, the, the American dream is alive and well here. And, and it's driven by, by God's plan. I, I, I've been able to get here uh, by his guidance and direction. And that's the way I view things. And so, um, you're going to you're going to be faced with challenges. You can either let the challenges defeat you or you learn something from them. I completely agree with that and I share your conviction that it is truly by God's grace that we're able to continue 
do the things that we do here in America? Well, one of the things that, by the way, the reason that I'm involved in in this race is because I'm seeing those opportunities uh, evaporate as we see where we're moving. I, I find it very troublesome, especially when I go to Capitol Hill and I see fences around the White House and the Supreme Court. We've turned third world. We have a Praetorian Guard now. 26,000 soldiers were deployed to Capitol Hill. That is absolutely ridiculous, ludicrous. And it's now we have a five-star fence uh, around. Uh, we formed this five-star corral once the cattle have already left. And so it's it, it makes us look weak and ineffectual. And it looks like you're creating a Praetorian Guard. What are you protecting against? And so these are some of the reasons that I, I see some troubling signs, and this is the reason that I want to get involved, because I don't like what I see. I've lived, in a, I've, I've been in about 60 different countries. I've been in, in, in sales states in Africa and the Middle East and Latin America, and I know how failed states go. And there's ideologies that drive those failed states, and one of those is communism and socialism. And I, you know, we won the Cold War. Uh, but we saw how the bad guys went from uh, going from from bullets to ballots. They get themselves into elections, and eventually they they corrupt an entire nation state. I was in Venezuela when Chavez got elected. I even got to meet the guy, and wow. uh, I saw what he did to that country in 15 years. He took it from one of the most prosperous in Latin America and destroyed it. So these are the reasons that we all have to look at what's happening around us, and we all have to get involved because we cannot allow this to happen to the greatest country on earth. Boy, that is profound. That brought to my mind the quote from Edmund Burke, who said, all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. I love that you are not one of those. You are willing to do something, to stand up, to step up. You see the writing on the wall from your experiences and working with and interacting with uh, different leaders, including toxic government leaders and um, you know, foreign governments that that uh, struggled um, and even failed. And you know the the different inputs that lead to certain outputs, and you're willing to help change the inputs uh, so that we can get to better outputs. I just I think that's, that's tre- tremendous. You know, I, I thank everybody who's ever put on a uniform and gone and served. I mean, you've, you've served, and thank you for your service. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that we do. We are called to service, and we go do it. Uh, so I'm not a politician. I've never run for anything in my office except for one time when I was uh, a junior in high school. I went to Boy State and I was elected county commissioner. So that's the sum total of my previous political experience. I love it. It's even more honorable because you're not a career politician. You're simply willing to share your voice and take action. Now, briefly, I want to circle back to a principle that was embedded in the second story you told about the stormy leader. I was recently talking with Brad Fisher, who's a business partner of mine, about an equation he's come up with to help quantify the effectiveness of a leader. He calls it the leadership leverage ratio. It's presented simply as T over H, as in the T is the numerator, the H is the denominator. The T stands for team, for the team, meaning how well the team is performing, how well they're communicating, just overall team performance. And the H stands for hero, meaning who gets to be the hero as the team succeeds. If the leader has the tendency to take all the credit for the wins and dump the losses back on the team, as it sounds like was the case with this second leader you talked about, that greatly diminishes the overall impact of that leader. If they're willing to give the credit where credit is due, which typically means acknowledging the great work of the team, 
that drives the hero score in the equation down and therefore means that there's a greater degree of leverage behind that leader's approach to leadership. I'd love any thoughts you have around that principle. Absolutely. So let's just compare those two leaders. One had a following. He created a lot of other people like him. Now, I wasn't as vocal or as as, um, as uh, excitable as he was, but I learned about standards and I learned about leadership and I learned about perseverance. And those are those are qualities that he taught not just me, but everybody who who uh, was under his tutelage. And so he created teams and he created followers and he created people that 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 adhered to standards. Uh, the other leader or the other, the other individual, uh, didn't have a following. He was very successful to get himself where he needed to go. Uh, and, and the, anybody that has been under his, um, his control, if you want to call it that, or, or has been subordinate to him, uh, cause he went on, uh, further in his civilian career. Um, and, and he was, let's just say he was forming future military leaders. And I've yet to find anybody who can say that that guy was an inspirational leader to me yet one. So you have a legacy and you, and, and the, the difference is having that legacy. That absolutely resonates. I, th- I think that can help all of us think about what leadership should be. As we get into our last segment, we like to identify a clear action item our listeners can grab a hold of and really implement today. Is there something that comes to your mind that people can take forward and put to work right away? It's, it's to acknowledge that you must know yourself. Sun Tzu was big on that. And I like Sun Tzu because he, he wrote a very short book. and You can read it quickly. But the key thing about Sun Tzu is know yourself. You've got to know. And then the other thing is that you've got to constantly read and you have to learn and you have to adapt because there's plenty of people that have gone before us. Biographies are a great way to understand how people uh, did things and adapt some of those. You've got to be able to adapt. You've got to be able to learn. You've got to read history. And because you do that, you start connecting dots. And Dad can tell you one of the things I always did uh, when I was working in the Pentagon is I, w- I took a fascination with elections. And I would make the analysts make a determination of who's going to win and why. And then I would make them write down by how much. And then afterwards, we would review that. And I'd say, okay, so what I want you to take away from this is why did you decide on a particular number? And what were the factors that led you to make that determination? And based on that, you learn how to connect dots much more quickly. And you find that your assessments of situations that can be life-threatening at times uh, is one that gets keener as you're able to ascertain what factors are that make your determination on, on what a course of action is going to be or, or what, what, what is a, a predetermined uh, course that an event is going to take. The, the connecting dots is a key thing in being a leader. And the more that you, you engage in that exercise, the better you get at connecting those dots. And all of a sudden, you're, you don't get as surprised as often. I love that. You started with the know thyself principle and then shared the story of taking your team through the thought exercises you described. It seems to me the foundational piece is the knowing of oneself, and then there is an added layer in regularly pushing ourselves to gain deeper skills. So there's a connection between the two elements. Uh, is that safe to say? I'm trying to connect the dots here, and it seems like that is really the core of what you shared. That's exactly right. And if you build that core, then when you do your reading, 
you can start looking at the enemy or an adversary or a challenge that you're facing. Once you understand yourself and you start understanding what you're facing, you're, you're, you're more likely to win and you're more likely to be the kind of person that connects dots and can take action to get those dots connected. So that's the important aspect of all of this because we're in the, we're in the business of solving problems and we're in the business about understanding the world around us and, and at least acknowledging what some of the things that could come and hit you. I remember back when I got into the Pentagon, one of the things I was telling my, uh, one of my, my action officers was beware of pandemics because I had lived through the pandemic in Mexico when I was at Northcom back in 2007, 2008, 2009. And I said, these things are big disruptors. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So when, when this pandemic began, I started tracking it very closely because I knew it was going to be one that would be a problem. I did not, I did not have full understanding of to what extent because there's been so many things that have come of it. Uh, and, and some of it uh, unnecessary, but at least we've seen how this thing has played out and the disruptions that these, can, these things can have. These black swan events are some that you have to be thinking about. What do I do? What are the possible black swan events? For example, I can see in the future that we're going to have problems with cyber. Be thinking about how do we respond to that? You know, we're, we're doing away with money. We're going to be a digital economy. We're, we're more and more quickly becoming an information-based society with situational ethics and people that are not as, as honest and have as much integrity as one would like. What happens to our personal freedoms? To give you an example of what I mean by knowing yourself and, and acknowledging that there's challenges around you that you have to face and how do you connect those dots? I think that is leadership in a whole new sense, leading so that the world actually becomes better not just in the sense of doing good and being helpful to people, which of course we, we sorely need in the world, but going about that to the point where we are seeing the writing on the wall, we're seeing certain trends and tendencies, and we see things that are pointing a direction that is contrary to our core beliefs and our knowledge, our, our principles of who we are, and then we're taking action to make the world a better place. I love that we're ending with this grander definition of leadership, that if we are truly leading, as maybe it sounds cliche, we can truly change the world and, and shape and create our future. Thank you. I just want to leave you with a challenge that you're going to face. We're all going to face. I saw that one, one of the most concerning things about events in the last, uh, in, in, in the last month or so are that anytime an unaccountable tech company can have censorship ability over the most powerful office in the world, we should all be very, very, very concerned about our First Amendment rights. When you can censor the President of the United States, that should be very concerning to all. And these are the kinds of challenges that we're going to face in the future, because if we relinquish our First Amendment rights, what is next? If you can, if you can silence people, if you can censor people, we're in a very, very bad place. And so we all need to wake up and, and, and start looking at how do we face that reality, because it's before us and it's affecting all of us. Thank you for that. What an important principle. Those core rights, the essential elements of the Constitution that makes America great, we must be good custodians of those and be willing to speak up when we feel lines are being crossed so that our great-grandchildren and beyond have the same or even better opportunities than we now have. And on that note, I want to sincerely thank you, Sergio. Our discussion today has given me a great deal to think about, and I'm sure any who have invested their time in joining us today are feeling the same sense of urgency to take action, to lead for deep solutions to real problems in the world, 
If you'd like to connect with Sergio and follow the good he's doing, you can visit his website at sergiodelapena.com. So S-E-R-G-I-O-D-E-L-A-P-E-N-A.com. Sergio, thanks. Thank you, Spencer. Appreciate it. Here in my office, I have a picture that's just to the right of me on the wall of the backside of one of my favorite mountains, uh, Maple Mountain. I, I grew up at the foot of that mountain. After listening to Sergio and having finished the main editing uh, steps that gives me a chance to re-listen to the whole interview, I find myself wanting to go up on the backside of that mountain, look out across the valley where you can't see any any uh, civilization whatsoever, and just think about what he shared. I find myself in this place of really wanting to kind of do an audit of my own agenda and approach to leadership and thinking more deeply about what changes the way I lead are being brought to pass or could be brought to pass, what, what's possible uh, if I'm willing to make adjustments and adapt my, my style and, and think more about those outcomes as I lead uh, instead of just, well, I should say in addition to just thinking through kind of the, the pleasantries of leadership, wanting people to get along, wanting to communicate clearly, hold people accountable effectively, delegate well, all those good nuts and bolts of leadership. Of course, we've, we've got to think about those and be deliberate about those. But today's conversation has been a deeper dive into high impact leadership in a whole new way uh, than, than what I've thought about for a while. So I'm so grateful to Sergio de la Pena for his, uh, his interview, the interview he's participated in today and the good that he's doing. I hope you will go check out his website and uh, look into what he's doing. And uh, importantly, also just think about your own impact, the difference you're making, the importance of knowing yourself. I know that if we will invest our time in those activities in that uh, introspective process that will come out better for it and be able to have um, more of a, a positive impact on the world moving forward. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Exploring Leadership Podcast. To access free videos, leadership tools, case studies, tutorials, and more about how to engage your leaders at the next level, visit lumenleader.com. We'll see you next time.